electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, ahead this hour on The Exchange, a collision course with commodities. That's what our guest warns the world economy is heading for as prices on everything from oil and coal to cotton soar. He has several ways for investors to hedge and even benefit from this trend. Plus, even when you don't have a shortage of fuel, you might still face a shortage of truckers to get it to fill-up stations, like Britain is facing right now. We talked to XPO Logistics about whether these shortages could become chronic and how to solve the lack of drivers. And in rapid fire, Netflix goes for gamers, a firm goes crypto, Lucid goes luxury, and Macy's goes after Amazon. But we begin with this rebound in stocks today. It's still there for two out of the three, Dom. I would say that the NASDAQ goes negative right now. That's what you're seeing, Kelly, because you're seeing right there the NASDAQ is just slipping. It's not a lot. But if you figure at the highs of the session, the NASDAQ was up roughly 130-some points, and now it's down seven. It's a pretty stark reversal given the sharp sell-off that we saw in yesterday's session. So a lot of the market's losing a little bit of steam here. The Dow Industrial is still up about one half of 1%, 150 points to the upside. The S&P 500, 43.66 the last trade there, a third of 1% in the upside. And like we said, the Nasdaq flirting between gains and losses. It has not been because, though, of a sharp move in interest rates. Check out what's happening with the 10-year Treasury note yield right now, 1.53%. Remember, at one point yesterday, we did get kind of some of those high levels, but we haven't seen a lot of movement today in Treasury yields. So the 10-year note yield, yes, it's still elevated on a relative basis, but not the key driver of any weakness that we've seen so far, at least in the NASDAQ that we can see. And then check out what's happening with the drivers of that trade Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook, the five biggest stocks in the S&P 500, also very large components of the NASDAQ. Big down days yesterday, trying to bounce a little bit today. Apple holding on to 1% gains. Microsoft just about flat on the day. Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook now flirting between gains and losses. So again, the big five showing some weakness here. We'll see if it changes at all in the afternoon session. Back over to you. Dom, thank you very much. I'll see you again soon. Surging energy prices are the latest supply headache and possibly the most serious one yet for the global economy. My next guest says the world is on a collision course with commodities and energy and tech names will be a good hedge. Joining me now, Charlie Mabrinskoy of Ariel Investments. He's the vice chair. And Jerry Castellini of Castle Arc. He's the chief investment officer. It's great to have you guys both here. And Jerry, I'll start with you. I've been borrowing and cribbing from uh, your your notes here. Um, Tell me to what extent you think this commodities collision course uh, can last? So I think it's more a question of it's something that people have acknowledged and, and been able to observe now actually coming to the forefront, right? We've been talking about supply chain, supply chain, supply chain for the last six to nine months. And a lot of the focus on it has underlined or, or masked what is also behind the supply chain problem. What we're going to probably see in the next six months is now real production shortfalls, right? So pr- today, Brazil is out with a horrible uh, forecast for their uh, crop production. We know we're behind in oil and gas production because our inventories globally are behind. Uh, we just don't have the amount of raw commodity capacity today to touch the amount of growth that's most likely going to be 
in, in demand over the next six to nine months. And so we're going to have to use price to adjust to that. Right. And what most investors haven't figured out yet is what do you do after that and how long does that last? And then that, that's a bigger discussion about well, inflation. And that's exactly where I want to go with this. I, I, I wish we had more time. So you say that people should hedge at least the near term of what you're talking about, this spike that could uh, continue its upward oh. trajectory with energy stocks like Conoco, Diamondback and Range. You also like tech thinking that rates aren't that big of a threat to their business models ultimately. Let me bring in Charlie. Charlie, first for some thoughts, not that you're, you know, an energy and commodity specialist per se, but, you know, once again, you're you're on in a week when when the trade is coming around uh, to where you stand. We have rates going up, uh, financials and energy starting to outperform. How long do you think this situation can last? A lot longer. I mean, Dom gave a great introduction, but the one thing he said was that the 10-year Treasury is at elevated levels at 150 on a historical basis, absolutely not. The average 10-year Treasury rate since Alexander Hamilton created 10-year Treasuries in 1790 is 4%. And with the inflationary outlook that I agree with Jerry that we're going to have because of every input cost, energy costs, uh, labor costs, big deficits, all of those factors are going to push inflation higher, which is going to push interest rates higher, end of tapering. We are going to have a lot higher than a 10-year Treasury at 150 I agree with everything Jerry said, except for I don't think this is good for tech stocks. What we've seen is that when interest rates go up, you're using a higher discount rate to bring back those present, those future earnings back to the present. So I think you're going to see those value stocks outperform. And let's, Jerry, talk about which stocks uh, on the tech front you do like. So as we look at the Nasdaq down again today, people are thinking about buying on the dips. Uh, Microsoft, MasterCard, NVIDIA, you know, you're not exactly talking about Zoom here. Why do you like these names? Well, it's, it's important to distinguish between the broad concept of uh, tech and something that's like Zoom compared to something like uh, Microsoft at 30 times earnings and MasterCard at a much lower multiple as well. Uh, we don't need uh, low interest rates to support the fast growth rates that these big companies have and will continue to have regardless of inflation. So there's a big group out there that I would agree with, Charlie, that don't really have a lot of upside in a rising rate environment, but don't think for a second that Microsoft's forward growth is gonna be at all impacted. And for that reason, all it's gonna do is grind away at its 15 to 20% growth rate, and it has a good return. And, and you marry that with some of these interesting oil stocks that are say is trading at four or five times cash flow, uh, that's a nice combination. And it's interesting, because even though you both seem to agree on the near-term outlook, you would be in different parts of the market. So Jerry, again, you'd be in more of the energy space, some tech stocks that you mentioned. Charlie, you're looking more at the industrials and the financials, is that right? With some energy, I, I own Apache, which is trading at three and a half times cash flow. Uh, so there are some energy names that I like a lot, but uh, yes, you're right, industrials, uh, financials. Financials are gonna do very well where we get a steepening yield curve. Uh, places like Bank of New York, Northern Trust are going to do very well in a, a higher interest rate environment. And it's a contrarian trade. When you, when you look at this, the surveys of market participants, they still aren't getting it on inflation. These people are still saying it's transitory, it's going to come down. I just don't think that's I, right. I'm not sure I'm getting it. I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I look at it, Charlie, and I, I think to myself, especially with the energy price spikes, this is demand destruction. This is bad for the economy. It's terrible for, for consumer pocketbooks. How is this going to create lasting inflation? It seems to me that the worse this is getting, the more it could actually send us back into a downturn, not create some sort of continued uh, situation with price hikes. Consumers are in excellent shape because wages are heading up. Amazon and McDonald's are paying $15 an hour. The lower tiered wage earners are earning more. 
Uh, we're getting, it's a very good job market. It's a very good economy. There is pent up demand. If we can get cars on a lot, we can sell them tomorrow. Housing prices, all of these things make individuals feel better about themselves. The consumer confidence number is well over 100. Uh, we're going to have a strong economy, especially when we get the other side of Delta, and that's going to be inflationary. I hope you're right. I, I just, like you said, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm still not there. I'm, I'm kind of. You're I'm with trying. the majority. The majority is with know. you, Kelly. But <laughs> I, I don't buy it. Ke Kelly, can I jump in here? Charlie's right. There's too big of a cushion right. for consumers all around the world to absorb this price hit. And we don't see that hit having a big impact on the global economy. No, I've seen the numbers, you know, a trillion plus in excess savings and all the rest yeah. of it, you know, as Michael Dart has been saying, and he predicted the taper. And here we are. Guys, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Laying out the view for the next Thanks, four Kelly. to six months time. Charlie Babrinskoy and Jerry Castellini. The other big market story today is Warby Parker going public in a direct listing. We are still waiting on the first trade in the New York Stock Exchange. They're trading under WRBY. While the company started as a direct-to-consumer play, it's been rapidly expanding its brick-and-mortar footprint. Warby's co-founder and co-CEO outlined that strategy earlier on Squawk Box. So we have around 150 stores today relative to thousands of stores that most of our um, larger competitors have. And the category has trailed uh, a lot of other consumer goods in terms of e-commerce penetration. It's still uh, in the single digits, and we have the opportunity uh, to really um, scale through our uh, leading offerings like our uh, virtual try-on and our virtual vision test. And ultimately, we don't care where a customer transacts. We just want to make sure um, that they have the best experience possible. So how did brick and mortar go from being a dinosaur to the future of e-commerce retail? Joining me now is Jan Niffen. He is the CEO of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide. Jan, long live brick and mortar. For sure. When these guys started, you know, they were online and they were a fashion retailer. Now they're brick and mortar and maybe they're a healthcare company because they're doing contacts, they're doing eye exams, they're grinding their own lenses. That's a big change from 2010 to now. So I find it very fascinating that the growth looks like it's all going to be coming, or not all going to be coming, but a big chunk of the growth is going to be coming out of the brick-and-mortar side, and they intend to build a lot more stores. And they're building them pretty fast, which tells you what we need to know is that you everybody needs online and everybody needs brick-and-mortar and one supports the other. They figured it out relatively early on. Yeah, they've been doing this for a long time. You know, it's just so interesting because how many times have we seen the stories you know, the death of mall, the death of brick and mortar, the death of the downtown. I mean, it, it is reassuring and encouraging that brick and mortar is so important to a company like Warby Parker. Our friend Simeon Siegel over at Nomura has been pointing out that you basically cannot exist in a profitable, sustainable way as an e-commerce play these days without a strong footprint. Why is that? Well, all, well Amazon's telling us the same thing, but the why is that is because a couple of things happen. Sales around a store online are a lot better than sales when there isn't a store there. Some of the reasons are the support of the store. You can take it back to the store. You can pick up at the store. There's lots of things going on with that. Another reason is the billboarding effect because people know you exist when there's a big store there. So they'll look for you online. So we haven't quite figured out the whole dynamic, but clearly when you close a store and you're an online player as well, sales around that store online go down. And Macy's has figured it out. They've been very careful about where they keep stores and don't keep stores because they know it affects the online business. So there's been a lot of work done there. I wouldn't say we're definitive, but almost everybody, including Amazon, has yeah. figured out 
that if you're selling online, you still need stores. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But Jan, as we're speaking, Warpay's open for trade. These direct listings typically take a little bit longer to open. Uh, so here we are, 1, 11 p.m. Eastern time, and they're trading around $54. I think the reference price was 40 in this one. You kind of look at that as analogous to the IPO process. So a 35% gain for WRBY. Quick final question, more just about Warby specifically, but as a buyer of uh, very expensive contact lenses, I think my last order was about $500 worth. Maybe that was a six-month six supply. Are they going to be able to bring down price and uh, get a lot of market share in this area? And, and what does that mean for the incumbents? Well, they clearly think they can because it's only about 1% of their business now, just like eye exams are only about 1% of their business now. They believe there's an open field for them because they think that they can do the same thing that they did in the eyewear. And I suspect they can. There's a pretty big umbrella out there on pricing for all of those kinds of goods. So I believe they will get real growth there as well. And I think having stores will help that too. But their real business is still going to be being a public benefit company that sells glasses. And I think it's interesting that they're trading well above the reference price because that puts them well above a $5 billion valuation. And people were hoping they would be something more than a $3 billion valuation. So it tells you what the world is thinking. They seem to like this public benefit company. Yes, they do. Uh, Jen, are you wearing Warby Parkers right now? I am not. I don't own a pair of Warby Parkers, oh. sad to say. Oh, come on. I guess that shows there's still plenty of room for growth. Jan, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. There's always room for growth when you got 1% of the market share. Yeah, that's true. And a $5 billion valuation at that. Jan Niffen with uh, J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide. Coming up, trucking companies are desperately looking to hire as a driver shortage in Europe threatens the availability of fuel. Up next, we'll speak with the second biggest truck broker about how to fix the massive shortage and what other industries it could sabotage. Plus, the fate of the Fed is up in the air as Chair Powell deals with the fallout of two resignations and a serious trading scandal. How will the market react to this Fed uncertainty and what if Powell's renomination becomes part of it? We'll discuss that coming up. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Sometimes the last mile is the longest one. Gas stations in the UK running dry this week with the blame lying mostly on the shortage of truck drivers to deliver fuel. The driver shortage, which existed before the pandemic, is only getting worse. And that means it's getting more expensive and taking longer to get goods and fuel to retailers and consumers. XPO Logistics runs the world's second biggest truck brokerage business with more than 12,000 drivers. But that's not enough to keep up. They're hiring about 50 truckers a week and training even more. Matt Fassler is chief strategy officer with XPO Logistics, and he joins me now. Matt, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Can you explain 
you know, just kind of looking back on your own career, have you ever seen anything like this worldwide? Uh, it's a unique time in lots of ways. Obviously, the freight transportation marketplace is stressed. We're obviously very busy bringing our customers capacity, bringing them the visibility that they so dearly want at a moment like this. And we're doing it by deploying technology across our business to drive that transparency and to drive efficiency uh, on behalf of those shippers. When I've looked at the numbers, I've seen that Britain is short of basically, you know, uh, let's say it has 80,000 drivers, but it's short 20,000 of them or something like that, like a quarter of the workforce it needs to fill right now. Is that about right in terms of the size and scale of the problem we're talking about? And how does that compare to other countries? It's definitely a significant issue. Driver shortages are, are an issue in the U.S. as well. And I think if you look broadly at the service economy, uh, it's a very, very tight employment market. Obviously, as, as you said in the lead-in, we're extremely focused on recruiting and training new drivers, not only in the UK, but also in the US. We have driver schools for our less than truckload business in the US. We're substantially increasing the number of graduates from those schools. We're taking extraordinary steps to raise our, our recruiting bar. And, and so far, that's been a successful effort. Yeah, and uh, now I'm going to ask you about your career in trucking. And I realize you worked at Goldman for 26 years before you came to the business. But still, you know, we've all been watching uh, these boom and bust cycles for quite some time. And I don't think ever seen it come to a head quite like this. Uh, to what extent is the pandemic uh, a big part of the problem? To what extent is it just the fact that the network itself is trying to keep up with demand snapping back more strongly than the supply chain? And what are the is it just going to be wages that ultimately entice people into being truck drivers? Or are we literally going to have to try to wait for some kind of autonomous driving to bail us out of this crisis? There's a few different elements here. You're right that the pandemic is at the root of the challenge that we're facing. Obviously, much of the world economy shut down. It then came roaring back with a vengeance. Consumer spending obviously was very strong emerging from the pandemic. And there's only so much capacity to move those goods. The pipes are only so big. And, and as such, you're seeing a, a graduate, you're seeing a rapid ramp of inventory back into the channel. And that's taken some time. I think the solution really is in, in part the passing of the pandemic, more and more people making their way back into the workforce. We're starting to see that transpire. And also, I think it's up to each provider, so up to each company, each shipper uh, to do their best to bring drivers into their network. And again, our efforts in doing so, uh, which have been underway for some time, uh, have been successful. And our customers, I think, are starting to see uh, the benefit of that. So, Matt, let, let's pretend this is, you know, congressional testimony or something where, you know, I, I can imagine we could get to that point if these things get worse, if the U.S. starts experiencing, you know, problems with truckers moving around fuel and that kind of thing. If they say to you, is this almost over? Is it about to be resolved or are we going to be facing chronic issues like this for months or even years time? What, what would you say about what the, the next six to 12 months hold? I think the issues that on the issues that you raised, I think we're starting to see resolution again. We at XPO are controlling what we can control and we're making terrific headway against these challenges. But as the world normalizes in many ways, and particularly as people make their way uh, back into the workforce, I think you're going to see these issues resolve themselves. The supply chain uh, will clear up. But again, right now, it's essential that companies like XPO that have capacity, that have visibility, that have the technology to help our shippers and our customers uh, achieve their goals in a tight freight market 
uh, are definitely helping the world get where it needs to go. Yeah, I can imagine it's more important than ever. Matt, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Matt Fassler with XPO. And before we head to break, let's look at how the other trucking stocks have performed more broadly. Old Dominion Freight Lines is up 50% since January. It's on track to close out its 11th straight quarter of gains and 17 out of the last 18 quarters positive. Ryder is up 35% to have its best year since 2013. J.B. Hunt is up 24% year to date and is the only one of the three about to end September in the red, down about 5%. Coming up, Netflix is trading near its record closing highs on best on pace for its best day since January after making a big acquisition. We'll tell you what it is and what it could mean for the stock. Plus, this stock is on pace for its best day in more than 20 years after announcing a big change to its business model. Think you know what it is? Tweet me your guesses at Kelly CNBC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get a quick check on markets. The Nasdaq is back in positive territory. It's been fluctuating today, hanging on to a 10-point gain. The Dow's up 158. That's about 100 points off the high. But the reason the Dow's outperforming in part is because of Boeing. It's leading the Dow after getting an upgrade from Bernstein. Uh, They're calling it a recovery with the shares up about 3.5% in air travel on the horizon. Our mystery chart from before the break was Dollar Tree. Investors are cheering its plan to get this. Raise some prices above $1. I wonder, again, if this is an issue with some of the supply chain inflation stories that have been going on. We'll see if consumers love it. Investors certainly do. Dollar Tree's up 16% on pace for its best day since 2000. And shares of Warby Parker are surging in their debut on the New York Stock Exchange, up about 35% to 53 and change. The reference price was $40. So that one, again, just opened in about the past 10 or 15 minutes' time. Over to Rahel Solomon now for our CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. Hurricane Sam may be offshore, but forecasters say that the storm could still bring life-threatening waves and rip currents to the East Coast this weekend. Hurricane watchers are keeping an eye on the storm, which is packing sustained winds of 130 miles per hour. A new poll from the Associated Press finds that unvaccinated Americans are planning more travel and heading back to gyms and churches. And at the same time, more than one in three vaccinated adults over 50 are very or extremely worried that they or a family member will become infected. That number has roughly doubled since June. And in Slovenia, thousands of people protesting tough anti-COVID measures in the small European country. Riot police fire tear gas and water cannons to control the crowd. Slovenia has suspended the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine following the death of a 20-year-old who had received a shot. And on the news, backlash from YouTube deleting posts and accounts with anti-vaccine content. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. A firm joins the likes of PayPal, Lucid Motors powers up, and one department store's giant billboard blunder. It's all coming up in today's Rapid Fire in just a moment. But before we go to break, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. All month long, we're spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders, and our own employees. Here is U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce Chair-elect Nelson Ranieri. The United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce proudly represents more than 5 million Hispanic-owned businesses across this country. And our pride comes from knowing the positive contribution that these Hispanic businesses make and their role in driving an equitable and sustainable economic recovery. 
In fact, Hispanics accounted for more than 80% of all net new businesses created in the last decade. So as we celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month, please join me in saying muchas gracias to these great Hispanic business leaders across our country. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire, and here to help me break down the headlines today, Matt Maley is Managing Director and Chief Market Strategist at Miller Tabak. Molly Wood is Host and Senior Editor at Marketplace Tech. And Sarah Fisher is Media Reporter over at Axios. Welcome, everybody. And we're going to start with Netflix today, continuing its push into gaming. And investors love it. They're buying their first video game developer, Night School Studio. Here's what Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos had to say Monday at the Code Conference about opportunities in gaming. I'm sure people will spend more time gaming as adults than they did 10 years ago and 20 okay. years ago. Uh, and part of that is going to be, is Netflix the way of monetizing content uh, better for the consumer in the game world like it was in TV and movies? Again, even as a lot of big tech companies are down about 10% from their recent highs, Netflix is nearly at its closing high. Shares are up about 3% today, a little bit off the highs of the session. Is this the next catalyst for the streaming giant, Molly? What do you think? You know, I think this is such a smart move because it's all about guaranteeing an ongoing stream of content. Making movies and TV is really expensive and you sort of have to hope that you get a hit, whereas gaming is known to be engaging. People get addicted to it. It's probably actually cheaper in the long run to buy game studios than to keep trying to recreate something with a huge budget like a Game of Thrones. Sarah, I guess because I don't know enough about gaming, I'm confused about do they need hardware for these games? How does this work? And this is a pretty crowded space as it is. So even if it's a big opportunity, why is Netflix the right place for people to go for gaming content? It's such a good question. I mean, Netflix owns the living room, Kelly, but they don't own your phone. Most people are not streaming their big hits in between commuting to work and home. That's the key difference here. This is mostly meant to be a mobile gaming play. And so what they're trying to do is if they can get you hooked on some of their key franchises, like a Stranger Things, while you're commuting, then you're going to be more likely to want to go home and watch some of their series on your living room TV set. So really what Netflix is doing here is they're creating a flywheel around their IP. And that's something that some of their competitors like Disney have been really good at for many years. Matt, what would you add and what are your thoughts on the way that the stock is trading? Yeah, I would say that I think it's such a great move because let's face it, Netflix changed the way we we watch TV and movies. I mean, it's not just you know it's it's not just the way that we did that. We do that. They also changed the content. I mean, they kind of did what All in the Family did, but back in the 1970s, changed the you know the, the way uh, uh, that we, we could they could do things on TV and and, and it can, you know created all sorts of great uh, uh, comedies over the next 30, 40 years. And Netflix has done the same thing. You know, they have Game of Thrones, I'm sorry, they have uh, the, the Crown, but they also have Ozark. I mean, and, and this is wide audience. And I think what they can do with this uh, gaming is make it more interactive and and and, and more wide, widely accepted. Um, but as for the stock overall, what the great thing is that the stock had been in, in a sideways range for a year. It had been a relatively wide range, uh, but it's now breaking out of that range. And, uh, you know, we're having a lot of volatility in the marketplace now. Once that things uh, things calm down, whenever a stock uh, moves out of a, a multi-month sideways range, and this was about a 14-month range, uh, it breaks out to the upside. It gains a lot of momentum. So I think the upside uh, is quite good for this name. Yeah, I'm still scratching my head, but I think the market is casting its vote. And Netflix is over 600 today with a lot of excitement around these opportunities. It'd be really interesting to see how it does change a consumer behavior with the platform. Next up, speaking of platforms, the Buy Now Pay Later platform, a firm 
Firm is getting into crypto. The company announced plans to roll out its own debit card and let customers use saving accounts on a firm's platform to buy crypto, as well as to split up payments. Firm down actually about 1.5% today, but up nearly 150% from its debut in January. Its market cap is more than $30 billion. Molly, this is not the player I expected to be getting into crypto. That's kind of the theme of rapid fire today, I guess. What do you make of it? Exactly. Unexpected moves that are about owning you wherever you are, to Sarah's point. And this is exactly that. And what I think is so interesting about that is that Affirm's Max Levchin has made no bones about the fact that he thinks that big banks are ultimately problematic for consumers and that he's trying to create a different sort of space. And allowing this crypto investment, I've heard from a lot of people who say they consider crypto investing to be more accessible, to be more of an equalizer than investing in traditional stocks and bonds and having these gatekeepers. And so if you are trying to be a do-everything finance app, a decentralization take people away from big banks app, it makes sense that you want to offer this investment opportunity simply because crypto isn't going anywhere. I wouldn't take it as a, you know, a bigger bet than it is on the existence of crypto. It's more like it's something consumers want to do. So why not offer it if you're trying to be everything? And Sarah, I think this gives us a peek into the ambitions of buy now, pay later. This is about more than the way that you split up payments to buy a large item. This is like Molly hinted at. This is about disintermediating the traditional financial system, the traditional payment processors, right? Absolutely, especially for Gen Z and millennials. I mean, this generation, not only are they being brought up on micropayments, all they're doing right now is tipping on their favorite platforms, but they're not into putting all of their payments on one big sum on a credit card and accruing debt. This generation pays much differently and saves much differently than the generations before it. And that's why, by the way, some of the competitors to what you're seeing, Alipay, et cetera, have been so successful because they're targeting the next generation of financial consumers. And to Molly's point, those consumers are not going to be attracted to the traditional payment systems that have been brought up by the big banks. They want something new. They want something different. They love crypto. So I'm actually surprised that their stock's down a little bit. Typically, you saw with PayPal, the stock shoots up right. on a crypto announcement. So I'm curious to see how that moves in the months coming Matt, you want to offer a comment on that? Why aren't they getting the halo effect from crypto? Is it that crypto is maturing and uh, it's a competitive space? And the number of times that people have come on and talked about trying to disintermediate Visa and MasterCard makes me wonder if the stocks of the 2010s will be able to sort of continue their reign for much longer. Well, I think they can over the long term, but I do agree with you with this, this issue on the cryptocurrencies. I don't necessarily think this is a great catalyst for uh, uh, for a firm. It's, it's just, you know, we had the situation obviously with China recently where they basically banned it uh, completely, uh, any transactions uh, in that area. And of course, that's a big, uh, big, big uh, market for, for anybody looking to expand, number one. But number two, we also have Gary Gensler, who's definitely signaling that they're going to put a lot more uh, restrictions on uh, the cryptocurrency uh, going forward. Now, I mean, let's face it, countries only have one really, really big power. That's the control of their, cur- their, their currency. So it's not just China who's going to you know, put some restrictions on here. So I just don't think this is the one that the, the catalyst is going to take uh, this company and these other companies like PayPal higher, uh, although other things can because they are good companies. In other words, for a company who's already seen as successful, the addition of crypto now could present a bigger regulatory risk than investors might be comfortable with. That's an interesting point. Again, we see those shares dipping into negative territory. All right, let's move along and talk about Lucid Motors, which officially started production for its first cars with deliveries slated for next month. They say they have more than 13,000 reservations so far. The entry-level model starts at 70,000. A few weeks ago, we had B of A analyst John Murphy on, 
who's bullish on the range uh, opportunities. Remember, the Lucid Creator was uh, in, uh, important in the Tesla Model S uh, creation as well. And uh, he was saying it's an open question. Who is actually going to become the leader in the EV space? Listen. The core platform of the vehicle itself is where Lucid is really going to succeed and, and really outstrip a lot of the competition um, and where they'll be really successful on the AV side. You now, still a very open-ended question is who the winners are really going to be and what that really means over time. Matt, your thoughts on this one? Well, I got to tell you, it's, well, the, the, the number one thing is we, there's, there's several of these companies out there, but nobody's been able to come out with a product. Now Lucid has. So that obviously gives them a, a big uh, step up on everybody else. Uh, I mean, obviously not with Tesla, but I mean, you know, these other companies like Fisker that we've been talking about. But the thing that I really like about this stock is that, you know, we, it had a big run, you know, back in the beginning of the year because of the, it was had a big short interest in the meme stocks all ran up like that. But as it, after it came back down, it got stuck in a sideways range and been trading there uh, for basically the last six months. Now we're bumping up against the top end of that range. Uh, and uh, if you can break out from there, that's going to get that's going to attract a lot of momentum money into, into this stock. And, uh, you know, again, like I said before, whenever you get a stock trading in a multi-month uh, sideways range, once it breaks out uh, in either direction, uh, it really moves. And in this case, it's, it's testing its uh, upper end there. And uh, if it breaks out, it's going to run. And Lucid is, the, I think, the first back-to-scale production of an EV now, Molly. So, you know, there's a lot at stake here for a, a market that's had some high-profile failures. And we're still kind of waiting to see if this one can now make it more common, as we've seen with the traditional OEMs, to bring these electric vehicles to market and what that ultimately means for Tesla's ambitions here. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're going to get an EV to market now and you're a relative unknown, this is the moment because all of these traditional automakers are about to be in this business in a big way. So there's never going to be a better opportunity to sort of try to make a name for yourself. I have to say, I think that's going to be tricky because Tesla has so much name recognition and a big cult following. But you also have an administration that while it's put a lot of weight behind EVs and the importance of this energy transition, it hasn't put any weight behind sort of non-traditional car makers. If right. you see who is invited to the party, it's all the names we already know. And that creates even more of an uphill battle for a brand new car company. Yeah, and maybe to illustrate that point, I did see Mary Barra is, I think, the new head of the business roundtable that was just announced earlier today. Of course, the CEO of GM, just kind of indicating how entrenched that company will be in the future of the business community here. Uh, speaking of business... We have to get this story in today before we go. Amazon and Macy's are fighting a war of words over a billboard. Amazon wants to put a billboard on top of the iconic flagship Macy's store in Herald Square. In court filings, Macy's said the damages to Macy's customer goodwill, image, reputation, and brand should a prominent retailer, especially Amazon, advertise on the billboard are impossible to calculate. Amazon is down about 10% from its 52-week highs lately, and they've made it clear they want and need a larger brick-and-mortar presence. Shares of Macy's, meanwhile, have been on an absolute tear, up more than 340% over the past year. Sarah, what do you think? Oh, my God. This is a tale as old as time. I remember when Google and Microsoft were fighting, and there were Scroogled ads all around the Scroogled off the Google office for Microsoft. This is what competitors do, Kelly. They take a big piece of real estate. They put a big builder board up or a big ad to kind of spook their competitors. And by the way, Macy's is right to be spooked. There's no better symbolism that your industry is being taken over by big tech than having your brick and mortar have the display of your biggest online competitor. So we'll see how that fares out. I know that they are talking to the 
uh, landlord of that building and trying to urge them not to let Amazon have that space. But if they do, it's bad news for Macy's. I wonder if it could backfire for Amazon, if they should go ahead and let them try and see. I, I, Matt, I see you nodding there. Molly, I'll give you the final word on this. Um, you know, and, and let's remind everybody, we just assume that Amazon's the big winner who's going to come in and destroy this space. But we've been speaking with retail analysts who say they need brick and mortar. They can't figure out how to get it right. E-commerce is flattening out after what's been a massive share. And maybe we shouldn't tr assume the relationship is what, you know, what it's commonly thought to be. I think that's really true. I think that the brick and mortar thing matters, but I do want to zero in on one of Macy's big complaints, which is that they will suffer reputational harm if Amazon advertises on top of their store. And there is a possibility that what you're seeing is a little bit of that backlash already, the consumer sentiment that says, weirdly, you know, you remember that Barnes & Noble used to be evil before Amazon came along. You could actually see a surge of goodwill toward Macy's based on nostalgia yeah. if they go ahead with this. Yeah, maybe we'll see a Hollywood movie. What was it? You've Got Mail, you know? You've Got Mail. Yeah, they'll have their You've Got Mail moment. Maybe. I love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, we I'm got still waiting to see uh, the New York Yankees advertise on the Green Monster in, in, in Boston. That's that, I think that's the next movie. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it will be. Guys, thank you all for your time today. We appreciate it. Matt Maley, Molly Wood, and Sarah Fisher for this edition of Rapid Fire. CNBC's Delivering Alpha is underway today, bringing together some of the biggest names in investing. They're talking about the ESG boom. TPG executive Jim Coulter, executive chairman, says while Tesla might be the first big ESG company, the truly big players have yet to emerge. The opportunity, he says, is large. We'll have more right after the break. Welcome back, everybody. CNBC's Delivering Alpha virtual conference is underway today. Leslie Picker is here, literally here, uh, to drill down on what some marquee investors have had to say about ESG in particular, Leslie. Yeah, Kelly, live in person for once, which is lovely. But uh, when we think about ESG investing, it really boils down to a few things. Is purpose-oriented investing actually more profitable, or does it simply protect the downside or, which is the more cynical view, is it just simply a marketing ploy? Well, Calster's Chris Ailman says that while some managers believe incorporating ESG is the right thing to do, they're not always doing it right. There's no question there are some asset managers who are just using those words because it's a marketing tool. There are a few asset managers who actually believe it's material and important to their investment process. Wellington's Wendy Cromwell says their research into this area is being used to help mitigate risk in the por portfolio to really pinpoint holdings that might be vulnerable to things like climate change, for example. But TPG's Jim Coulter believes there is alpha to be had in sustainable investing. He just raised a $5 billion climate fund along with former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson. We're moving into an era where you can't count on that data and you've got to deliver alpha. And that's what that's, so where are you going to find alpha? You're going to find alpha in disruption and change and major waves in the economy. You might choose biotech. You might choose reshoring. But I think this, what my partner Hank Paulson calls, you know, the biggest industrial revolution in the history of mankind, which is the decarbonizing the economy. We're just on the early moments of that, of that era. And that to me is interesting and, and uh, why I'm searching for alpha there. Now, as you can tell, big thoughts, ambitious thoughts that have already been shared in the first half of the day, but we're only halfway through. There's still so much more to come at Delivering Alpha. Firesides with altimeters, Brad Gerstner, Social Capitals, Chamath Palihapitiya, Andreessen Horowitz's Katie Hahn, 
So much more to go, and it's not even 2 o'clock yet. Well, I love what Jim Coulter is saying because we're at a time right now where the there are sort of eye-watering uh, opportunities in energy, kind of a bad reason. I mean, the other side of that is the consumers and businesses that have to pay in these massive price spikes. But like he was saying, if we're so early that maybe we're in the AOL stage of the kind of clean energy trend, whatever you want to call it, I wonder what he's what they're going to be able to invest in. You know, if we have to wait, if we're not at the area yet of having um, or the names he picked Salesforce and Google, you know, that was 10 to 15 years after maybe 10 years after, you know, we first saw Internet uh, disruption in the 1990s. So will he be able to find those big bets now or are we still some years away from that? I wonder. Yeah, I think that is the critical point to be made when it comes to ESG, because it's one of those things where we've seen this huge rush of capital flow into this space. And one thing that I asked Chris Ailman is, is this something that investors feel like they are just doing because everybody else is doing it, because right. the herd is doing it? And that's where you see things like Jim Coulter was talking about with regard to kind of dot-com era. The internet was the big thing, so everybody felt they had to be there mm -hmm. without really understanding what it meant yeah. and how it would impact society. And a lot of capital got destroyed before a lot was created yeah. <laughs> in the cycle after that. Leslie, thank you for the recap and the highlights. We appreciate it. And as mentioned, there's still much more coming up for Delivering Alpha this afternoon. Still ahead, what Jay Powell didn't say yesterday is more revealing than what he did address, according to Jeffrey's David Zervos. He joins me to explain right after this break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Quick news alert here. Walgreens is said to be weighing a takeover of Evelyn Health. Shares of EVH had been halted. They were up 18%. Now they've reopened. They are up about 11%. Walgreens is up a little bit less than 1% on that report. We'll continue to monitor it. Meanwhile, the fate of the Fed and the taper timeline are in question following the resignations of hawkish voting members Eric Rosengren and Robert Kaplan. After questions about asset trading stirred up controversy and are now being investigated, those issues and what Fed Chair Powell didn't say in his Senate testimony yesterday Today could reveal he knows his tenure as Fed chair might be over, according to my next guest. Joining me now is David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. David, it's good to have you here because the consensus had kind of settled in on the idea that he would be renominated, but you now think differently. Well, to be to be uh, clear, Kelly, I, I thought uh, Jay's probabilities were actually pretty low. I was away from the market to begin with and have been for the better part of a year. I thought divisive right. politics in D.C., uh, really meant that the Dems did not want a, a Republican in such a powerful job going into the midterms, uh, especially if they're unable to get this fiscal package through. The only thing that's left is monetary policy. So they need they need real control, uh, especially even, you know, thinking further ahead to the 24 presidential election. So from your point of view, and, and you're right, I do remember you writing about this, you know, maybe a year ago. A lot of people more recently, though, thought that Powell, by being so dovish, by, you know, kind of all of the dovish surprises he's given us in the, in the last few months, that that was part of this effort to, to kind of signal, I'm still your guy. Now maybe you're thinking, it's not so much that, that there's anything wrong with what he's doing, you know, on the monetary policy side, but that it's an opportunity for people to replace him. Um, and that maybe there are some legitimate questions that need to be asked about why there wasn't more oversight of what was going on with this trading. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Kelly. I think this creates a real opportunity for the progressives that, that we know we're going to try to take him out anyway. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren yesterday, I mean, that was about as aggressive as I, I've ever seen uh, a senator treat uh, a Fed chair in any testimony in the 30 plus years I've been watching this. It was uh, it, it was really an ugly exchange at the end. And, and, and I think, um, you know, she has some ability to step it up uh, because, 
that things look more vulnerable. I mean, you have a, a trading scandal under your watch. You're the boss. You probably should have uh, been a little bit more um, cognizant of what was going on. He still has some questions to answer in his own municipal bond portfolio issues on the on the municipal bond portfolio issues. So I, I think it's it, it's an opening, and I, I really do think that even without it, it would have been a tough it would have been a tough uh, decision in the end for the Biden administration, particularly if this fiscal stuff gets hung up. Um, which it increasingly looks like it's going to do. Sure. And that's another factor here as well. So you actually went back and said maybe the hawkish messaging we were starting to hear last week could have been an early way of him kind of paving the way for a, a post-Fed legacy. But I wonder if the practical takeaway for investors here is a more dovish Fed, uh, you know, in the law. And, and what does that mean for rates, for the yield curve? I'm, I'm curious how you would play this narrative out. It's really complicated. Let me let me just say that you know I, I was very puzzled, and I you know I was on uh, with uh, Sarah and Wilf after the uh, press conference on Wednesday, and I said to them, I'm like, you know, I just listened to this thing. It was me and Paul McCauley, and I I said, you know, this sounded like a different Jay. I really didn't get it. Like, what's what's changed? But he didn't mention transitory. He didn't talk about long term disinflationary pressures. He didn't talk about the five million missing jobs. Usually he's he's much more, um, you know, for lack of a better word, dovish, and it was all gone. And the market sort of noticed, and then kind of went on its merry way. But you know, we had a little bit of a dip, and it came back, and everybody was so I think a little perplexed as I was. And as I was thinking about it into Friday and the weekend, I thought, well, what's different? Not not the data. Employment data was weak during the post Jackson Hole pre meeting period, and the CPI came out weaker. What's different is this uh, scandal. And I think this scandal kind of changes the internal, you know, thinking of, of someone like Jay, whose odds are a little lower and maybe he doesn't have to play by the, the game he's been playing by, which is to try to appease the administration a little bit to make sure he gets the job. So, and, and, yeah, again, sorry, I, I would just say, as, I'm sorry. No, but we're this is all very speculative, totally. But I think yeah. that these are exactly the kinds of things that traders are discussing, uh, talking about who might step up, whether it will mean more dovishness, and if that's all kind of feeding into uh, the moves and rates that we've seen. Uh, you know, since this is changing day by day, day and week by week, we'll check back in and see you know how it progresses. But I appreciate you at least you know laying out the landscape as you see it uh, today. It's good to have you. Always good to be here, Kelly. Dave Zervos with Jeffries. You've been listening to the Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.